Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 9 This, then, turned out to be Magnolia's first glimpse of Gaylord Ravenel, an idle, elegant figure in garments whose modish cut and fine material served at a distance to conceal their shabbiness. Leaning moodily against a tall packing case dumped on the wharf by some freighter, he gazed about him and tapped indolently the tip of his shining and cracked boot with an exquisite little ivory-topped malacca cane. There was about him an air of distinction, an atmosphere of richness. In closer proximity, you saw that the broadcloth was shiny, the fine linen of the shirt-front and cuffs the least bit frayed, the slim boots undeniably split, the hat a delicate grey, and set a little on one side, soiled as a pale grey hat must never be. From the cotton-blossom deck you saw him as the son, perhaps, of some rich Louisiana planter, idling a moment at the water's edge, waiting, doubtless, for one of the big river packets, the floating palaces of the Mississippi, to bear him luxuriously away up the river to his plantation landing. The truth was that Gaylord Ravenel was what the river gamblers called broke. Stony, he would have told you. No one had a better right to use the term than he. Of his two possessions, save the sorry clothes he had on, one was the little Malacca cane. And though he might part with cufflinks, shirt studs, and, if necessary, shirt itself— he would always cling to that little Malacca cane, emblem of good fortune, his mascot. It had turned on him temporarily. Yet his was the gambler's superstitious nature. Tomorrow the cane would bring him luck. Not only was Gaylord Ravenel broke, he had just politely notified the chief of police of New Orleans that he was in town. The call was not entirely one of social obligation. It had a certain statutory side as well. In the first place, Chief of Police Vallon, in a sudden political spasm of virtue, endeavoring to clear New Orleans of professional gamblers, had given them all twenty-four hours shrift. In the second place, this particular visitor would have come under the head of New Orleans' undesirables on his own private account, even though his profession had been that a philanthropist. Gaylord Ravenel had one year old notch to his gun. It had not been murder in cold blood or in rage, but a shot fired in self-defense just the fraction of a second before the other man could turn the trick. The evidence proved this and Ravenel's final vindication followed. But New Orleans gathered her civic skirts about her and pointed a finger of dismissal toward the door. Hereafter, should he enter, 
His first visit must be to the chief of police, and twenty-four hours, no more, must be the limit of his stay in the city, whose pompano and crayfish and creoles and roses and Rema's gin fizzes he loved. The evening before, he had stepped off the river pack at Lady Lee, now to be seen lying alongside the New Orleans landing, together with a hundred other craft. His twenty-four hours would expire this evening. Certainly he had not meant to find himself in New Orleans. He had come aboard the Lady Lee at St. Louis, his finances low, his hopes high, his erstwhile elegant garments in their present precarious state. He had planned, following the game of stud poker in which he immediately immersed himself, to come ashore at Memphis, or, at the latest, Natchez, with his finances raised to the high level of his hopes. Unfortunately, his was an honest and over-eager game. His sole possession, besides the little slim malacca came, itself of small tangible value, was a singularly clear blue-white diamond ring, which he never wore. It was a relic of luckier days, before his broadcloth had become shiny, his linen frayed, and his boots split. He had clung to it as he had to the cane, through almost incredible hazards. His feeling about it was neither sentimental nor superstitious. The tenuous streak of canniness in him told him that, possessed of a clear white diamond, one can hold up one's head and one's hopes, no matter what the state of coat, linen, boots, and hat. It had never belonged, fiction fashion, to his sainted, if any, mother, nor was it an old Ravenel heirloom. It was a relic of winnings in luckier days, and represented, he knew, potential hundreds. In the trip that lasted unexpectedly from St. Louis to New Orleans, he had won and lost that ring six times. When the Lady Lee had nosed her way into the Memphis landing, and again at Natchez, it had been out of his possession." He had stayed on board, perforce. Half an hour before coming into New Orleans, he had had it again, and had kept it. The game of stud poker had lasted days, and he rose from it the richer by exactly nothing at all. He had glanced out of the Lady Lee's saloon window, his eyes bloodshot from sleeplessness, his nerves jangling, his hands twitching, his face drawn, but that face shaven, those hands immaculate. Gaylord Ravenel, in like or out, had the habits and instincts of a gentleman. Good God, he exclaimed now, this looks like it is New Orleans. It was New Orleans, as he said it. What did you think it was? growled one of the players, who had temporarily owned the diamond several times during the journey down river. "'What did you think it was, Shanghai?' "'I wish it was,' said Gaylord Ravenel. "'Somewhat dazedly he walked down the Lady Lee's gangplank "'and retorted testily to a beady-eyed, giant-footed gentleman "'who immediately spoke to him in a low and not unfriendly tone. "'Give me time, can't you? "'I haven't been twenty-four hours stepping from the gangplank to this wharf, have I? "'Well, then.' "'No offense, Gay,' said the gentleman, his eyes still searching the other passengers as they filed across the narrow gangplank. 
Just thought I'd remind you. Case of trouble. You know how Valon is. Valon had said briefly later, That's all right, Gay. But by this time, tomorrow evening... He had eyed Ravenel's raiment with a comprehending eye. Cigar? The weed he proffered was slim, pale, and frayed as the man who stood before him. Gaylord Ravenel's jangling nerves ached for the solace of tobacco, but he viewed this palpably second-hand gift with a glance of disdain that was a triumph of the spirit over the flesh. Certainly no man handicapped by his present sartorial and social deficiencies was justified in raising a quizzical right eyebrow in the manner employed by Ravenel. "'What did you call it?' said he now. Valon looked at it. He was not a quick-witted gentleman. Cigar! Optimist! And strolled out of the chief's office, swinging the little malacca cane. So then, you now saw him leaning moodily against a wooden case on the New Orleans plank wharf. Distinguished, shabby, dapper, handsome, broke, and twenty-four. It was with some amusement that he had watched the crew of the Molly Abel bring the flat, unwieldy bulk of the cotton blossom into the wharfside in the midst of the confusion of packets, barges, steamboats, tugs, flats, tramp boats, shanty boats. He had spoken briefly and casually to Schultze while that bearer of evil tidings, letter in hand, waited impatiently on the dock as the cotton blossom was shifted to a landing position farther upstream. He had seen these floating theatres of the Mississippi and the Ohio many times, but he had never before engaged one of their actors in conversation. "'Juvenile lead!' he had exclaimed, unable to hide something of incredulity in his voice. Schultze, an anxious eye on the Molly Abel's tedious manoeuvres, had just made clear to Ravenel his own position in the Cotton Blossom troupe. Ravenel, surveying the furrowed brow, the unshaven cheeks, the careless dress, the lackluster eye, had involuntarily allowed to creep into his tone something of the astonishment he felt. Schultze made a little... Schultze made a little deprecating gesture with his hands, his shoulders. I guess I don't look like no juvenile lead, and that's a fact. But uh, I'm all shot to pieces. Took a drink the size of this, indicating perhaps five fingers, up yonder on Canal Street. Straight whiskey. No drinking allowed on the showboat. Well, sir, never felt it no more than it had been water. I just got news my wife's sick in the hospital. Ravenel made a little perfunctory sound of symphony. In New Orleans? Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm going... It's a dirty trick, but I'm going. How do you mean, dirty trick? Ravenel was mildly interested in this confiding stranger. Leave the show flat like that? I don't know what they'll do. I... He saw that the cotton blossom was now snugly at ease in her new position, and that her gangplank had again been lowered. He turned away abruptly without a goodbye, went perhaps ten paces, came back five, and called to Ravenel... You ever acted? Acted? On the stage. Acted. Been an actor. 
Ravenel threw back his handsome head and laughed as he would have thought ten minutes ago he never would laugh again. Me! <laughs> An actor! N then suddenly sober, thoughtful even. Why, yes, yes! And eyeing Schultze through half-shut lids, he tapped the tip of his shiny, shabby boot with the smart little Malacca cane. Schultze was off again towards the cotton blossom. If Ravenel was aware of the scrutiny to which he was subjected through the monoculars, he gave no sign as he lounged elegantly on the wharf, watching the busy waterside scene with an air of indulgent amusement that would have made the onlooker receive with incredulity the information that the law was even then snapping at his heels. Captain Andy Hawkes scampered off the cotton blossom and approached the figure, employing none of the finesse that the situation called for. I understand you've acted on the stage. Gaylord Ravenel elevated the right eyebrow and looked down his aristocratic nose at the capering little captain. I am Gaylord Ravenel of the Tennessee Ravenels. I fail to catch your name. Andy Hawkes, captain and owner of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theater. He jerked a thumb over his shoulder at the showboat. Ah, oh, yes, said Ravenel, with polite unenthusiasm. He allowed his patrician glance to rest idly a moment on the Cotton Blossom, lying squat and dumpy alongside the landing. Captain Andy found himself suddenly regretting that he had not had her painted and overhauled. He clutched his whiskers in embarrassment, and under stress of that same emotion, blurted the wrong thing. I guess Parthy was mistaken. The Ravenel eyebrow became interrogatory. Andy floundered on. She said that no man with a crack in the shoe... He stopped, appalled. Gaylord Ravenel looked down at the footgear under discussion. He looked up at the grim and ponderous female figure on the forward deck of the showboat. Parthy was wearing one of her most uncompromising bonnets and a gown noticeably bunchy even in that day of unsymmetrical feminine fashions. Black was not becoming to Mrs. Hawke's sallow colouring. Lumpy black was fatal. If anything could have made this figure less attractive than it actually was— Ravenel's glance would seem to have done so. That, uh, um, lady? My wife, said Andy. Then, mindful of the maxim of the sheep and the lamb, he went the whole way. We've lost our juvenile lead. Fifteen a week. Chance to see the world. No responsibility. Schultz, said, you said, I said, uh, Parthy said, <laughs> Hopelessly entangled, he stopped. Am I to understand that I'm being offered the position of the uh, juvenile lead on the... The devastating glance upward. Cotton Blossom Floating Palace? That's the size of it, interrupted Andy briskly. After all, even this young man's tone and manner could not quite dispel that crack in the boot. Andy knew that no one wears a split shoe from choice. No responsibility, he repeated. A chance to see life. I've seen it, in the tone of one who did not care for what he has beheld. His eyes were on a line with the cotton blossom's deck. 
His gaze suddenly became concentrated. A tall, slim figure in white had just appeared on the upper deck, forward, the bit of deck that looked for all the world like a nautical veranda. It led off Magnolia's bedroom. The slim, white figure was Magnolia. Preparatory to going ashore, she was taking a look at this romantic city which he always had loved, and which she, in company with Andy or Doc, had roamed a dozen times since her first early childhood trip on the Creole Belle. Her dress was bunchy too, as the mode demanded, but where it was not bunchy, it was very tight, and its bunchiness thus only served to emphasize the slimness of the snug areas. Her black hair was drawn smoothly away from the temples and into a waterfall at the back. Her long, fine head and throat rose exquisitely above the little pleated frill that finished the neckline of her gown. She carried her absurd, beribboned and beflowered high-crowned hat in her hand. A graceful, pliant, slim young figure in white, surveying the pandemonium that was the New Orleans levee. Columns of black rose from a hundred steamer stacks. Freight barrels and boxes went hurtling through the air or were shoved or carried across the plank wharf to the accompaniment of shouting and sweating and swearing. Bandboxes, carpet bags, babies, drays, carriages, wheelbarrows, carts. Beyond the levee rose the old salt warehouses. Beyond these lay Canal Street. Magnolia was going into town with her father and her mother. Andy had promised her supper at Antoine's and an evening at the old French theatre. She knew scarcely ten words of French. Andy, if he had known it in his childhood, had quite forgotten it now. Parthy looked upon it as the language of sin and the yellowback paper novels. But all three found enjoyment in the grace and color and brilliance of the performance and the audience, both of the sort to be found nowhere else in the whole country. Andy's enjoyment was tinged and heightened by a vague nostalgia. Magnolia's was that of one artist for the work of another. Parthy's was the enjoyment of suspicion. She always hoped the play's high scenes were going to be more risque than they actually were. From her vantage point, Magnolia stood glancing alertly about her, enjoying the babble that was the New Orleans plank wharves. She now espied and recognized the familiarly capering little figure below with its right hand scratching the mutton-shop whiskers this side and that. She was impatient to be starting for their jaunt ashore. She waved at him with the hand that held the hat. The upraised arm served to enhance the delicate curve of the pliant young figure in its sheath of white. Andy, catching sight of her, waved in return. "'Is that,' inquired Gaylord Ravenel, "'a member of your company?' Andy's face softened and glowed. That? That's my daughter, Magnolia. Magnolia? Magno... Does she... Is she... Oh, I should smile, she is. She's our ingenue lead, Magnolia is. Plays opposite the juvenile lead. But if you've been a trooper, you know that, I guess. A sudden suspicion darted through him. Say, young man, what's your... What's your name? Oh, yes, oh, yes, Ravenel. Well, Ravenel, you a quick study? 
That's what I got to know, first off, because we leave New Orleans tonight to play at the bayous. Bayou Tesh tomorrow night in Tempest and Sunshine. You a quick study? Lightning, said Gaylord Ravenel. Five minutes later, bowing over her hand, he did not know whether to curse the crack in his shoe for shaming him before her or to bless it for having been the cause of his being where he was. That he and Magnolia should become lovers was as inevitable as the cosmic course. Certainly some force greater than human must have been at work on it, for it overcame even Parthi's opposition. Everything conspired to bring the two together, including their being kept forcibly apart. Himself a picturesque, mysterious, and romantic figure, Gaylord Ravenel, immediately after joining the Cotton Blossom troupe, became the center of a series of dramatic episodes, any one of which would have made him glamorous in Magnolia's eyes, even though he had not already assumed for her the glory of a galad. She had never before met a man of Ravenel's stamp. In this dingy, motley company, he moved aloof, remote, yet irresistibly attracting all of them, except Parthy. She, too, must have felt drawn to this charming and magnetic man, but she fought the attraction with all the strength of her powerful and vindictive nature. Sensing that here lay his bitterest opposition, Ravenel deliberately set about exercising his charm to win Parthy to friendliness. For the first time in his life, he received rebuff so bristling, so unmistakable, as to cause him temporarily to doubt his own gifts. Women had always adored Gaylord Ravenel. He was not a villain. He was, in fact, rather gentle, and more than a little weak. His method, coupled with strong personal attractiveness, was simple in the extreme. He made love to all women and demanded nothing of them. Swept off their feet, they waited, trembling deliciously for the final attack. At its failure to materialize, they looked up, wondering to see his handsome face made more handsome by a certain wistful sadness. At that, their hearts melted within them. That which they had meant to defend, they now offered. For the rest, his was a paradoxical nature, a courtliness of manner contradicted by a bluff boyishness, a certain shy boldness. He was not an especially intelligent man. He had no need to be. His upturned glance at a dining-room waitress bent over him was in no way different from that which he directed straight at Parthy now, or at the daughter of a prosperous southern lawyer or at that daughter's vaguely uneasy mamma. It wasn't deliberate evil in him or lack of fastidiousness. He was helpless to do otherwise. Certainly he had never meant to remain a member of this motley troop, drifting up and down the rivers. He had not, for that matter, meant to fall in love with Magnolia, much less marry her. Propinquity and opposition, either of which usually is sufficient to fan the flame, together cause the final conflagration. For weeks after he came on board, he literally never spoke to Magnolia alone. Parthy attended to that. 
He saw her not only daily, but almost hourly. He considered himself lucky to be deft enough to say, "'Lovely day, isn't it, Miss Magna?' before Mrs. Hawkes swept her offspring out of earshot. Parthy was wise enough to see that this handsome, graceful, insidious young stranger would appear desirable and romantic in the eyes of women a hundredfold more sophisticated than the childlike and unawakened magnolia. She took refuge in the knowledge that this dangerous male was the most impermanent of additions to the Cotton Blossom troupe. His connection with them would end on Chelsea's return. Gaylord Ravenel was, in the meantime, a vastly amused and prodigiously busy young man. To learn the juvenile leads in the plays that made up the Cotton Blossom Troop's repertoire was no light matter. Not only must he memorize lines, business, and cues of the regular bills, Uncle Tom's Cabin, East Lynn, Tempest and Sunshine, Lady Audley's Secret, The Parson's Bride, The Gambler, and others— but he must be ready to go on in the concert afterpiece, whatever it might be, sometimes a dollar for a kiss, sometimes red-hot coffee. The company rehearsed day and night. During the day, they rehearsed that night's play. After the performance, they rehearsed next night's bill. With some astonishment, the Cotton Blossom troupe realized, at the end of two weeks, that Gaylord Ravenel was acting as director. It had come about naturally and inevitably. Ravenel had a definite theater sense, a feeling for tempo, rhythm, line, grouping, inflection, characterization, any or all of these. The atmosphere had freshness for him. He was interested. He wished to impress Andy and Parthy and Magnolia. He considered the whole business a gay adventure and an amusing interlude. For a month they played the bayous and plantations of Louisiana, leaving behind them a whole countryside whose planters, villagers, had been startled out of their southern lethargy. These had known showboats and showboat performances all their lives. They had been visited by this or that raffish, dingy, slapdash, or decent and painstaking troupe. The Cotton Blossom Company had the reputation for being the last-named variety, and always were patronized accordingly. The plays seldom varied. The performance was, usually, <laughs> less than mediocre. They were, then, quite unprepared for the entertainment given them by the two handsome, passionate, and dramatic young people who now were cast as ingenue and juvenile lead of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre Company. Here was Gaylord Ravenel, fresh, young, personable, aristocratic, romantic of aspect. Here was Magnolia, slim, girlish, ardent, electric, lovely. Their make-believe adventures as they lived them on the stage became real. Their dangers and misfortunes set the natives to trembling. Their lovemaking was a fragrant and exquisite thing. News of this troop seeped through from plantation to plantation, from bayou to bayou, from settlement to settlement, in some mysterious underground way." 
that Cotton Blossom did a record-breaking business in a region that had never been markedly profitable. Andy was jubilant. Andy was jubilant. Parthy, apprehensive. Magnolia, starry-eyed, tremulous, glowing. Her lips seemed to take on a riper curve. Her skin was somehow softly radiant, as though lighted by an inner glow, as Julie's amber coloring in the years gone by had seemed to deepen into golden brilliance. Her eyes were enormous, luminous. The gangling, hobbledy-hoy, sallow girl of seventeen was a woman of eighteen, lovely and in love. Back again in New Orleans, there was a letter from Schultze, a pathetic scrawl, illiterate, loyal. Ellie was out of the hospital, but weak and helpless. He had a job, temporarily, whose nature he did not indicate. Porter in a little rock saloon, I'll be bound, ventured Parthy shrewdly, rubbing up the brass and the cuspidors. He had met a man who ran a ragfront carnival company. He could use them for one attraction called the Old Plantation or the South before the war. They were booked through the Middle West in a few weeks if Ellie was stronger. He said nothing about money. He said nothing of their possible return to the cotton blossom. That, Andy knew, was because of Ellie. Unknown to Parthy, he sent Schultze two hundred dollars. Schultze never returned to the rivers. It was, after all, oddly enough, Ellie who, many, many years later, completed the circle which brought her again to the showboat. Together, Andy, Parthy, and Doc went into consultation. They must keep Ravenel. But Ravenel obviously was not of the stuff of showboat actors. He had made it plain when he first came aboard that he was the most impermanent of troopers, that his connection with the Cotton Blossom would continue, at the latest, only until Schultze's return. He meant to leave them, not at New Orleans, as they had at first feared, but at Natchez, on the up-trip. "'Don't tell him Schultze ain't coming back,' Doc offered brilliantly. "'Have to know it sometime,' was Andy's obvious reply." "'Person think,' said Parthy. "'He was the only juvenile lead left in the world. "'Matter of fact, I can't see where he's such great shakes of an actor. "'Roll those eyes of his a good deal and talks, deep voice. "'But he's got hands white as a woman's and fusses with his nails. "'I'll wager, if you ask around in New Orleans, "'you'll find something queer, "'for all he talks so high about being a ravenel of Tennessee "'and his folks governors in the old days "'and slabs about him in the church and what not. "'Shifty, that's what he is. "'Mark my words. "'Best juvenile lead ever played the rivers, "'and I never heard that having clean fingernails "'hurt an actor any. "'Oh, it isn't just clean fingernails,' snapped Parthy. "'It's everything. "'Oh, wouldn't hold that against him either.' roared Doc. The two men then infuriated the humorless Mrs. Hawks by indulging in a great deal of guffawing and knee-slapping. That's right, Hawks. Laugh at your own wife. And you too, Doc. You ain't my wife, retorted Doc, with the privilege of sixty-odd, and roared again. The gossamer thread that leashed Parthy's temper dissolved now. 
I can't bear the sight of him. Palavering and soft-soaping. Thinks he can get around a woman my age. Well, I'm worth a dozen of him when it comes to smart. She leaned closer to Andy, her face actually drawn with fear and a sort of jealousy. He looks at Magnolia, I tell you. A fool if he didn't. Andy Hawks. You mean to tell me you'd sit there and see your own daughter married to a worthless tramp of a wharf rat, or worse, that hadn't a shirt to his back when you picked him up? Oh, God, a mighty woman! Can't a man look at a girl without having to marry her? Having to marry her, Captain Hawks. Having... Well, what can a body expect when her own husband talks like that? And before strangers, too. Having... Doc rubbed his leathery chin a trifle ruefully. Stretching a point, Mrs. Hawks, ma'am, calling me a stranger, ain't you? Oh, all right. Keep him with the show, you two. Who warned you about that yellow-skinned Julie? And what happened? If shares is what you want, I'll wager you could get them fast enough if you spoke his name in certain parts of this country. Wait till we get back to New Orleans. I intend to do some asking around, and so does Frank. What's Frank got to do with it? But at this final exhibition of male obtuseness, Parthy flounced out of the conference. On their return from the bayous, the cotton blossom lay idle a day at the New Orleans landing. Early on the morning of their arrival, Gaylord Ravenel went ashore. On his stepping off the gangplank, he spoke briefly to that same gimlet-eyed gentleman who was still loitering on the wharf. To the observer, the greeting between them seemed amiable enough. "'Back again, Gay!' he of the keen gaze had exclaimed. "'Seems like you can't keep away from the scene of the—' "'Oh, go to hell!' said Ravenel. He returned to the cotton blossom at three o'clock. At his appearance, the idler who had accosted him, and who was still mysteriously lolling at the waterside, shut his eyes and then opened them quickly as though to dispel a vision. Gripes, Ravenel! Robbed a bank! From the tip of his shining shoes to the top of his pale gray hat, Ravenel was sartorial perfection. Nothing less. The boots were handmade, slim, aristocratic. The cloth of his clothes was patently out of England and tailored for no casual purchaser, but for Ravenel's figure alone. The trousers tapered elegantly to the instep. The collar was molded expertly so that it hugged the neck. The linen was of the finest and whitest, and cunning needlecraft had gone into the embroidering of the austere monogram that almost escaped showing in one corner of the handkerchief that peeped above his left breast pocket. The Malacca stick seemed to take on a new luster and richness now that it found itself once more in fitting company. With the earnings of his first two weeks on the cotton blossom enclosed as evidence of good faith, and future payment assured, Gaylord Ravenel had sent by mail from the Louisiana bayous to Plumbridge, the only English tailor in New Orleans, the order which had resulted in his present splendor. He now paused a moment to relieve himself of that which had long annoyed him in the beady-eyed one. Listen to me, Flatfoot. 
The cotton blossom dropped anchor at seven o'clock this morning at the New Orleans dock. I came ashore at nine. It is now three. I am free to stay on shore, or not, as I like, until nine tomorrow morning. Until then, if I hear any more of your offensive conversation, I shall have to punish you. Flatfoot, thus objurgated, stared at Ravenel with an expression in which amazement and admiration fought for supremacy. By God, Ravenel, with any luck at all, <laughs> that gull of yours ought to get you a million some day. I wouldn't be bothered with any sum so vulgar. From an inside pocket he drew a perfecto, long, dark, sappy. Have a smoke. He drew out another. And give this to Vallon when you go back to report. Tell him I wanted him to know the flavor of a decent cigar for once in his life. As he crossed the gangplank, he encountered Mrs. Hawks and Frank, the lumbering heavy, evidently shorebound together. He stepped aside with the courtliness that the Ravenals of Tennessee could not have excelled in the days of swords, satins, and periwigs. Mrs. Hawks was, after all, a woman, and no woman could look unmoved upon the figure of cool elegance that now stood before her. "'Sakes alive!' she said inadequately. Frank, whose costumes, ashore or afloat, always were negligee to the point of causing the beholder some actual nervousness, attempted to sneer without the aid of makeup, and made a failure of it. Ravenel now addressed Mrs. Hawks. "'You are not staying long ashore, I hope?' "'And why not?' inquired Mrs. Hawks, with her usual delicacy." I had hoped that perhaps you and Captain Hawks and Miss Magnolia might do me the honor of dining with me ashore and going to the theater afterwards. I know a little restaurant where— Likely, retorted Parthy, by way of polite refusal, and moved majestically down the gangplank, followed by the gratified heavy. Ravenel continued thoughtfully on his way. Captain Andy was in the box office just off the little forward deck that served as an entrance to the showboat. With him was Magnolia. Magnolia, minus her mother's protecting wings. After all, even Parthy had not the power to be in more than one place at a time. At this moment, she was deep in conversation with Flatfoot on the wharf. Magnolia was evidently dressed for a festive occasion. The skirt of her light ecru silk dress was a polonaise draped over a cream-white surah silk, and the front of the tight bodice basque was of the same cream-white stuff. Her round hat was of Milan straw, with its modishly high crown. It had an artful brim that shaded her fine eyes, and this brim was faced with deep rose velvet, and a bow of deep rose velvet flared high against the crown. The black of her hair was all the blacker for this vivid color. An ecru parasol and long suede gloves completed the costume. She might have stepped out of Harper's Bazaar. In fact, she had. The dress was a faithful copy of a costume which she had considered particularly fetching as she pored over the pages of that book of fashion. Andy was busy at his desk. 
ranged in rows on that desk were canvas sacks. Plump, squat, canvas sacks, limp, lopsided, canvas sacks, which, when lifted and set down again, gave forth a pleasant clinking sound. Piled high in front of these were neat packets of greenbacks, ones and ones and ones, and bundles of fifty, each bound with a tidy belt of white paper pinned about its middle. Forming a kind of Chinese wall around these were stacked half-dollars and quarters, dimes and nickels, with now and then a campanile of silver dollars. In the midst of this, Andy resembled an amiable and highly solvent gnome stepped out of the Grimm's fairy tale. The bio trip had been a record-breaking one in points of profit. And fifty-six hundred and fifty! Andy was crooning happily as he jotted figures down on a sheet of yellow-lined paper. And fifty-seven hundred and twenty-five, seven hundred twenty-five, and twenty-five... Oh, Papa! Magnolia exclaimed impatiently and turned towards the little window through which one saw New Orleans lying so invitingly in the protecting arms of the levee. It's almost four, and you haven't even changed your clothes, and you keep you keep counting that old money, and, and Ma's gone on some horrid business with that sneaky Frank. I know it's horrid because she looked so pleased, and you promised me. We won't see New Orleans again for a whole year. You said you'd get a carriage and, and two horses and, and we'd drive out to Lake Ponchart train and, and have dinner and, and drive back and go to the theatre and now and now it's almost four and you haven't even changed your clothes and you keep counting that old money and Mama's... After all, in certain ways, Magnolia, the ingenue lead, had not changed much from that child who had promptly had hysterics to gain her own ends that day in Thebes many years before. Minute, Andy muttered absently. Can't leave this money laying around like buttons, can I? Germania Nationals letting me in the side door is a special favor after hours, as tis, just so as I can deposit and okay, huh? And fifties, eight fifty, and fifties, not. I don't care, cried Magnolia and stamped her foot. It's a downright mean of you, Papa. You promised, and I'm all dressed. "'And you haven't even changed your—' "'Oh, God Almighty, Nolly! "'He ain't going to turn out an unreasonable woman like your ma, are you? "'Here I sit, slaving away. "'Oh, how beautiful you look!' exclaimed Magnolia now, to Andy's bewilderment. "'He looked up at her. "'Her gaze was directed over his head at someone standing in the doorway. "'Andy creaked hastily around in the ancient swivel chair.' Ravenel, of course, in the doorway. Andy pursed his lips in the skyrocket whistle, starting high and ending low, expressive of surprise and admiration. Oh, how beautiful you look, said Magnolia again, and clasped her hands like a child. And you, Miss Magnolia, said Ravenel and advanced into the cubbyhole that was the office and took one of Magnolia's surprised hands delicately in his and bent over it and kissed it. Magnolia was an excellent enough actress and sufficiently the daughter of the gallant and Gallic Andy to acknowledge this salute with a little gracious inclination of the head and no apparent surprise whatever. 
Andy himself showed nothing of astonishment at the sight of this suave and elegant figure bent over his daughter's hand. He looked rather pleased than otherwise. But suddenly, then the look on his face changed to one of alarm. He jumped to his feet. He scratched the mutton-chop whiskers, sure evidence of perturbation. Oh, look here, Ravenel. That ain't a sign you're leaving, is it? Those clothes. And now kissing Nolly's hands. Oh, God almighty, Ravenel, you ain't leaving us. Ravenel flicked an imaginary bit of dust from the cuff of his flawless sleeve. These are my ordinary clothes, Captain Hawk, sir. I mean to say, I usually am attired as you now see me. When first we met, I was in temporary difficulties, the sort of thing that can happen to any gentleman. Oh, certainly can, Andy agreed, heartily and hastily. Sure can. Well, <laughs> you gave me a turn. I thought you'd come in to give me notice. And while we're on it, you're foolish to quit at Natchez, like you said, Ravenel. I don't know what you've been doing, but you're cut out for a showboat actor, and that's the truth. Stick with us, and I'll raise you to twenty. As Ravenel shook his head. Twenty-five. Again, a shake of the head. Thirty. And God Almighty, there ain't a juvenile lead on the rivers ever got anywheres near that. Ravenel held up one white, shapely hand. Let's not talk money now, Captain. Though if you would care to advance me a fifty, I... Oh, thanks. I was going to say I came in to ask if, if you and Mrs. Hawks and Miss Magnolia here would do me the honor to dine with me ashore this evening and go to the theater. I know a little French restaurant. Papa! She swooped down upon little Andy then, enveloping him in her ruffles, in her Surah silk, her rose velvet, her perfume. Her arms were about his neck. Her fresh young cheek pressed the top of his grizzled head. Her eyes were enormous, and they looked into Ravenel's eyes. Papa! Magnolia! shouted Andy in a French frenzy, clutching the whiskers as though to raise himself by them from the floor. Magnolia must have been enjoying the situation. Here were two men, both of whom adored her, and she them. She therefore set about testing their love. Her expression became tragic, but not so tragic as to mar her delightful appearance. To the one who loved her most deeply and unselfishly, she said, You don't care anything about me or my happiness. It's all this old boat and business and money. Haven't I worked night after night, year in, year out? And now, when I have a chance to enjoy myself, it isn't as if you hadn't promised me... We're going, I tell you, Nolly. But your ma isn't even here. And how did I know Doc was going to be stuck at Baton Rouge? We got plenty of time to have dinner ashore and go to the theater. But we'll have to give up the drive to Ponchard Train. A heartbroken wail from Magnolia. Her great dark eyes turned in appeal to Ravenel. It's the driver I like better than anything else in the world. And horses. I'm crazy about horses, and I don't get a chance to drive. Oh, Will, at an objection from Andy, sometimes. But what kind of horses do they have in those little towns? 
and here you can get a splendid pair, all shiny and their nostrils working, and a Victoria, and lovely long tails, and a clanky harness and fawn cushions, and the lake and soft-shelled crabs. She was becoming incoherent, but remained as lovely as ever, and grew more appealing by the moment. Ravenel resisted a mad urge to take her in his arms. He addressed himself earnestly to the agonized Andy. "'If you will trust me, Captain Hawks, I have a plan which I have just thought of. I know New Orleans very well, and I am, well, very well known in New Orleans. Miss Magnolia has set her heart on this little holiday. I know where I can get a splendid turnout. Chestnuts, very high steppers, but quite safe.' An unadult squeal of delight from Magnolia. If we start immediately, we can enjoy quite a drive, Miss Magnolia and I. If you like, we can take Mrs. Means with us, or Mrs. Soper. No! From the brazen beauty. And return in time to meet you and Mrs. Hogs at, uh, say, Antoine's for dinner. Oh, Papa! cried Magnolia now. Oh, Papa! Your Ma! began Andy again, feebly. The stacks and piles still lay uncounted on the desk. This thing must be settled somehow. He scuttled to the window, scanned the wharf, the streets that led up from it. I don't know where she's got to. He turned from the window to survey the pair, helplessly. Something about them, the very fitness of their standing there together, so young, so beautiful, so eager, so alive, so vibrant, melted the romantic heart within him. Magnolia in her holiday garb, Ravenel in his tailored perfection. Oh, well, I don't see how it'll hurt any. Your ma and I will meet you at Antoine's at, say, half-past six. They were off. It was as if they had been lifted bodily and blown together out of the little office, across the gangplank to the landing. Flatfoot stared after them almost benignly. Andy returned to his desk, resumed his contented crooning. Four o'clock struck, half-past four. His pencil beat a rat-a-tat-tat as he jotted down the splendid figures. A gold mine, this Ravenel, a fine figure of a boy, cheap at thirty. Rat-a-tat-tat! and fifties, one thousand, and twenty-fives, one thousand, twenty-five, and fifties, and fifties, twelve, twenty-five, oh gosh, a mighty! A shriek, a bouncing across the gangplank and into the cubbyhole, just as Andy was rounding happily into thirteen hundred. A hand clutching his shoulder, frantically whirling him bodily out of the creaking swivel chair. Parthy, hat awry, "'Bosom palpitating, eyes starting, mouth working. "'On Canal Street!' she wheezed. "'It was as though the shriek she had intended "'were choked in her throat by the very force of the feeling behind it, "'so that it emerged a strangled thing. "'Canal Street! The two of them, with my own eyes, "'driving in a... in a... <sighs> "'She sank into a chair.' There seemed to be no pretense about this. Andy, for once, was alarmed. The tall, shambling figure of Frank, the heavy, passed the little ticket window, blocked the low doorway. He stared 
open-mouthed at the almost recumbent Parvy. He was breathing heavily and looked aggrieved. She ran away from me, he said. Sees him in the crowd, driving, and tries to run after the carriage on canal, with everybody thinking she's gone loony. Then she runs down here to the landing, me after her. Woman her age, what do you take me for anyway? But Parthy did not hear him. He did not exist. Her face was ashen. He's a, he's a murderer, she now gasped. Andy's patience, never too long-suffering, snapped under the strain of the afternoon's happenings. What's wrong with you, woman? Have you gone clean crazy? Who's a murderer? Frank? Who's he murdered? For two cents, I'd murder the both of you come howling in here when a man's trying to run his business like a business and not like a yelling insane asylum. Parthy stood up, shaking. Her voice was high and quavering. Listen to me, you fool. I talked to the man on the docks, the one he was talking to, and he wouldn't tell me anything, and he said I could ask the chief of police if I wanted to know about anybody. And I went to the chief of police, and a perfect gentleman if there ever was one, and he's killed a man. The chief of police killed a man? What man? No, shrieked Parthy. Ravenel. Ravenel's killed a man. God almighty, when? He started as though to rescue Magnolia. A year ago. A year ago in this very town. The shock of relief was too much for Andy. He was furious. They didn't hang him for it, did they? Hang who? asked Parthy, feebly. Who? Ravenel! They didn't hang him? Why? No, they let him go. He said he shot himself. He's killed a man and they let him go. What does that prove? He'd a right to. All right, what of it? What of it? Your own daughter is out driving in an open carriage this minute with a murderer, that's what. Andy Hawks. I saw them with my own eyes. There I was, out trying to protect her from contamination by finding out. And I saw her the minute my back was turned. Your doings. Your own daughter, driving in the open streets, in an open carriage with a murderer. Oh, open murderer be damned, squeaked Andy in his falsetto of utter rage. I killed a man when I was nineteen, Mrs. Hawks, ma'am, and I've been twenty-five years and more as respected a man as there is on the rivers, and that's the truth if you want to talk about mur— But Parthenia and Hawks, for the first time in her vigorous life, had fainted. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.